Shart International presents Fresh Talk, conversations about creativity in the 21st century. I'm Kathy Bird, Fresh Art producer. Today, I spoke on Skype with Stephen Vitiello. Stephen is an electronic musician and sound artist who transforms atmospheric noises into soundscapes. One of his installations is now featured in Soundings, a contemporary score at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Curated by Barbara London, this is MoMA's first-ever exhibition dedicated exclusively to sound art. A lot of museums have been exhibiting sound art, and why is it suddenly in the news? Because it's a Museum of Modern Art that puts a much larger stamp of validation on it. It also puts it under a microscope. So even the little bits of press that I was looking at today are already questioning, well, is it really all that good, you know? And, um, or is it going to succeed or fail or, well, you know, and, and it's kind of what happens with major surveys, you know, even like the Whitney Biennial, people are usually ready to knock it down before they even take it all in. But I think, you know, the survey shows, I mean, ideally sound art will infiltrate the art world and just the way that you have a, a, a large group exhibition and there might be a video work or there might be two video works. My wish is that in the future there will be a sound work rather than sound art often getting bunched into these shows where it's all work about the, t- you know, that has the common technology of sound but is not necessarily thematically connected Now installed in MoMA's Sculpture Garden, A Bell for Every Minute was originally commissioned in 2010 for a year-long installation on the High Line in New York. I loved how you described it as a cultural soundscape when it all comes together. Tell me about that. It's a piece that was on the High Line from, for, one, I think, one day less than a year, from 2010 to 2011, and it was made for the High Line. You know, to describe the piece quickly, what I did was recorded bells, all over, every bell I could think of, and people at Creative Time helped me think of other bells, and then I chose 59 of them. And at the beginning of the hour, all the bells ring together so that Boots, the cat's bell rings at the same time as the synagogue, as the same time as the Hare Krishna temple bell, as you know, um, the, the New York Stock Exchange. They're all ringing together on one even plane, and then after that, one bell rings each minute individually. And there's a, a aluminum five foot by four foot sound map that's engraved that traces what you hear on each minute, and also you can kind of follow to where I recorded it. So your installation at MoMA will be mm-hmm. outdoors, I understood. It is, yeah. The rest of the exhibition is on the third floor. You know, it's not a piece that belongs in a black box. And I make other pieces that, you know, where I want to kind of put you in that kind of immersive space. But this piece, A Bell for Every Minute, it really should it kind of be in harmony in concert with the city. So I asked for the sculpture garden so there's five speakers out in the sculpture garden and the sound map. For the High Line, Stephen created a public art experience 
with sounds ranging from a tinkling cat's collar to the clang of the New York Stock Exchange. There's the people who go and they know what they're going for. And then there's other people who just sort of stumble upon it and may be surprised about kind of reorienting their senses so that they're listening rather than looking and sometimes find that they can listen for a much longer time than they might have looked if they were just going to stand in front of a, a single work of art. I can see that would be the case for the Highline installation. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I get feedback like somebody emailed me who I didn't know who said that they jogged there every day and it took them a few days to notice even that they noticed these bells and then they stopped and they read the sign and they started to look forward to as I run by there, you know, each day, what am I going to hear tomorrow? Uh, and somebody sent me a, a novel, um, like a Wall Street thriller in which the, the character goes uh, and he says, and then he went up onto the high line to listen to his favorite work of art, a bell for every minute. One of the beauties of going into larger public spaces is that you do open yourself up to a wider audience and sometimes an audience that you can catch by surprise. Um, I got a larger audience for that piece than probably anything I've ever done. And the appreciation is something that surprised me because it came from children, it came from joggers, it came from art people, it came from grandmas. And, and it seemed that the bells could speak to them. It didn't have to be my language. It didn't have to be an art language or a, an academic or a conceptual thing. They could interpret it in any number of ways, and it was meaningful, which is great. What you just heard was Stephen's 1999 recording of Winds after Hurricane Floyd. That year, he was artist-in-residence on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center. That's the piece that ended up being, I guess, representing that, that whole residency. Was, it's called World Trade Center Recordings, Winds After Hurricane Floyd. Uh, and it was, was right, it was second strongest hurricane to hit New York in the decade. We couldn't go in the building during the hurricane, but the morning after it peaked, I went in and there was a term that I was told was called weeping in architecture, but the building was still so wet and the winds were still strong enough that it really felt very, you felt the physicality of movement and you also heard it. And in that work, the recording of mine, it, it's often said that the building sounds like an old you know, ship kind of creaking and cracking in the wind. That's a haunting thought, really. It is, and it's, you know, it, it wasn't until I could hear up there that I became a little afraid of heights. It, everything felt very artificial until I got those microphones working. And then once you got the microphones working, you realized you were on the 91st floor and you were way up above, you know, in some cases above the clouds, up above planes and helicopters, definitely above people. And there was a real vulnerability and fragility of being there. I mean, that, I'm not saying that in any way had anything to do with predicting the, the terrible things that came, but it just, just the physicality of being becomes much more, I think, sensitized when you can hear. 
you became aware that the building was actually a fragile being. In a exactly, way. exactly. And I was often there, you know, at night. It was, I don't know, you know how many thousands of people occupy the World Trade Center. So it's not to say that I was alone, but in many ways I did feel alone because I was in, isolated in my studio. Most of the building's lights were off. And that fragility was kind of amplified by that feeling of just being in this weird little black box studio looking out over the city. During his 2013 residency at Robert Rauschenberg's island home on Captiva in Florida, Stephen made a profound discovery. Rauschenberg had recorded sound too, with cassette recorders and an underwater microphone. I used my own audio recorders and microphones, but I sort of touched his things and just loved being able to open up a closet and go, wow, there's Robert Rauschenberg's cassette recorders. And I'd open up another drawer and there were these underwater speakers that were not fully functional, but even dreamed of using my underwater microphone and his his underwater speaker. And now you have maybe an awareness of what your own artifacts are going to be. I think that's true. And, you know, one of my many backgrounds was working as an archivist. And and while I was in New York, I worked for Electronic Arts Intermix, which is a video art distributor. I worked for The Kitchen as an archivist. I worked for Namjoon Paik over 12 years in all sorts of capacities. And I'm not ever going to claim to put myself on that plane of, of some of the artists I've worked with, but I do, I do try to value the work that I do and keeping track of it, keeping good records, keeping formats um, migrated. You know, I mean, even going back to that World Trade Center piece, the Whitney bought it in 2002, and I came in and I handed them a. DVD disc, and they said, oh, this was 2002, but they said, we don't accept digital digital media for acquisitions. And I said, but it is a digital work. And we had to then negotiate, well, what are you going to get? And the format I was giving them, DVD audio, is actually now an obsolete format. So I also gave them data backup of the files uh, that make up the six channels of that work. And it, it made me think for future acquisitions as other people bought pieces or I wish other people would buy pieces, you know, who, who's going to take care of them? What are they allowed to do? What kind of backup files uh, or even equipment should go with the piece? You said that you are emotionally attached to sound. What do you mean by that? You know, in film, for example, a lot of the emotional content is often created with sound. You could take a scene and make it happy, scary, sexy, sad by changing the soundtrack. And I found that it's the connection I have to the world is a lot of feeling that I feel comes through listening. Um, The physical impact of sound is very emotional to me. I found that in installations that I can really play with the kind of the psyche of the visitor at least play to it by the manipulation of sound in space and that 
if it's done right, you, you'll end up feeling first and, and thinking second. I think that with visual art, you often look, you kind of intellectually process, and then you might be moved or not. With sound, I think it's the opposite. You sort of, that feeling hits you physically, the vibrations of sound into your body, and then maybe you process what you're thinking. Um, but it's just, I don't, I don't have a super visual eye the way so many of my friends do. I don't always notice colors or design problems, but I do listen first and look second. If you close your eyes, sound does suddenly seem much louder and richer and more finely detailed. Probably my favorite photograph that represents my work that I have is from Australia. And I told a group of school children uh, who I, I kind of underestimated their, their real brilliance and their sensitivity. But I, you know, at first I just thought I'd tell them a little and I'd go send them into my installation. But I, I said, you know, if you could close your eyes when you get in there, tell me if you hear the piece differently. And then they had all sorts of questions that were incredible questions. But there, someone later gave me a photograph of one of the girls in the class with her eyes closed, listening to the piece. And it seemed like she was listening with her entire, her entire being. And that picture makes me feel like I've done something for one moment that mattered. That was an excerpt from The Sound of Red Earth, a 2010 site-specific work created by Stephen Vitiello in Australia. You can read more about Stephen and sound art on freshartinternational.com. We have a Facebook page, and I tweet every day at freshartintl. Now how about one last sound? Glass bells that Stephen played in a MoMA Sculpture Garden performance this August. (laughs) ¶¶ 